You're listening to The Bookstorian Podcast, a podcast for book lovers and bookstagrammers. Hello and welcome to The Bookstorian Podcast. My name is Tegan and I am your host. On this episode of The Bookstorian Podcast, I chat to Tamsin from At Babbling Books. We discuss her bookstagram account, what inspires the photos that she takes, as well as unpaid partnerships that she has with a range of publishing houses. In addition, we also have a chat about her business at Mina and Maud. We then chat about The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. It is truly a unique read, and if it is currently sitting on your bottom of TBR challenge picture, I really hope after listening to this episode, you will change your mind. And to aid those of you who haven't yet read the story, I have also made this a spoiler-free episode. I hope that you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Bookstoring Podcast, Tamsin. How are you? Hi, I'm really well, thank you. I'm very excited to talk to you today about The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. It was one of my favourite books in 2020, so it'll be nice to deconstruct it with you. Yeah, I really loved it too, so looking forward to chatting about it with you. I always start my podcast with an icebreaker question, and our icebreaker question today is, what book was your most recent add to your TBR? Ah, oh, I got very nervous you were asking that. It's like, what books have I added recently? Uh, there's quite a few uh, this month, which is slightly embarrassing. But the one that arrived most recently on my doorstep and that I'm really, really excited about um, is an early copy of Growing Up Disabled in Australia, which um, is an anthology edited by Carly Finlay. Um, I'm so excited to read this book. Um, it was gifted to me by the publisher Blank Black Ink. Uh, from here in Australia as part of a collaboration that we're going to be doing um, over the next couple of months. But I'm super excited to read all the stories in that collection. I love their growing up Aboriginal in Australia, which was edited by um, Dr. Anita Heiss. So um, yeah, really interested to see the perspectives and personal stories of um, the writers that Carly's chosen. And I find little short snippet stories or chapter length is a really good and manageable book to pick up as well. So if you wanted to um, only spend a little bit of time reading these sorts of novels are, or I don't know, is novel? Yeah, these sorts of novels or these sorts of literature is a good place to land yourself or to find yourself in. My recent addition to my TBR only happened this morning uh, when I was listening to a different podcast and I thought it was perfect to also mention on this podcast because it also is about the dictionary. So my recent TBR was The Liar's Dictionary by Eli Williams or Ellie Williams. Um, and it is another dictionary themed novel, as I said before, but it's about a dissatisfied lexographer who includes false entries in the dictionary and then it follows the story of Mallory, who is a modern day woman who has to go through and find all these mistakes before the publication is actually digitalized. So I thought after reading the Dictionary of Lost Words and having a newfound appreciation for the dictionary, this is something that I would also like to read and see how it goes as well and would be a good recommendation for people potentially who enjoy reading about the dictionary. So Tamsin, you have a bookstagram account at Babbling Books. 
You were one of the accounts that I followed years ago when I first started my bookstagram. And I was also a part of your book club for a little while there as well. And you have beautiful, crisp, clean lines, and it's definitely um, progressed over time as well. And I just, I really enjoy seeing your posts. And I think we have a lot of books in common as well. But for people who haven't seen your bookstagram feed before, can you describe it for them? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, definitely been around for quite some time on, on Bookstagram. So it's always really nice to like hear of people that I've connected with in one way or another, like over the years and how like connected people are to those relationships that we really follow one another's books. We trust one another's reviews and we get to know each other through the things that we're passionate about and all of those things that we share. That's just my favorite thing about this community. Um, in terms of trying to describe my feed, I mean, at the moment, I would say that it's definitely a focus on like featuring the covers, you know, so much of book design at the moment is really eye-catching, gorgeous cover design. And I really like to showcase that um, alongside very vintage vibes, which I think, you know, bright colours and vintage vibes is probably how you could describe my decorating style of my house as well. <laughs> um, so that's kind of it. But I think, as you said, my style and my photos have changed and evolved over the years. And definitely always been one for bold colours. I've gone through the extremely detailed flat lay phase and all sorts of things. Um, I've never deleted any of my posts. So uh, if anyone is a keen uh, digital social media historian and wants to troll back through the archives, if you scroll long enough, you can actually find the very first post that I made on Instagram as babbling books. <laughs> That's really cool. And I think that's a very admirable feature as well of your bookstagram is that you haven't gone through and deleted. And I think that's something that people definitely need to accept when they have a look at their own bookstagrams. And maybe if there's something that doesn't go to plan that it doesn't mean you have to delete it and get rid of it. So why did you start your bookstagram account all those years ago, as you say? <laughs> yeah, so I think it's been, I think it's been five or six years, I think it's coming up to six years uh, sometime in May this year. Um, so 2021, I think will be six years. Um, a lot of different reasons. One of them I'd moved from like regional Victoria to Melbourne um, around about that time. I think I'd been there for maybe one or two years. I didn't know many people who lived in the city, um, didn't have a whole heap of friends. And I joined a local book club and it was called The Last Book Club on Earth. And we read, solely dystopian uh, science fiction books, um, of which I am a huge fan, though I've maybe read slightly less of them in recent years, but definitely still chugging my way through um, quite a few of them uh, each year. So that was kind of my main book interaction, right? It was once a month I would get together and I would talk about one sci-fi book with this really great group of people who've actually still, like a lot of them still friends of mine. Um, but that was not enough. That was not enough for me. One, it was not enough books. I was reading a lot more than one book a month. Um, and so I was, you know, plowing through books at a, a, a rate much quicker than that. Um, but also once a month for like two hours to talk about books was just like, I was the person at the end of book club who was like lingering, who was like, oh, but then, and what about, and did you read? And like, I was that person. So 
I'd started another, I started a new job at that time as well. And I, one of my colleagues also read books. She read very different genres to me, um, but we were becoming fast friends and all of our lunch breaks were spent talking about books. And uh, one of our colleagues was like, you should start a podcast. This is six years ago when like, I wasn't even a hundred percent sure what a podcast was. I'm not an early podcast adopter. And um, I was like, I don't really know. Podcast seems hard. Dunno. Um, but my, my friend that I was talking to, she was like, did you know that people take photos of books and like they put them on Tumblr and on Instagram? Like Instagram was not as big um, as it is now and as ubiquitous. But um, yeah, so she was like on Tumblr. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Like I like taking photos, but like who takes photos of books? Like, and we had a couple books with us because we always read them in our lunch breaks. And so we just like tried around the office. We like took a few photos. Um, I didn't ever post them on my feed. So you can't go back and find those. I think I do have them saved somewhere in Dropbox. But anyway, it was just like a playful thing. And I was like, no, no, let's, let's do this. Let's both do this. Let's make an Instagram account. And we found the hashtag Bookstagram. And at the time on Tumblr, it was Bookla. And we looked them up and we like looked at all the inspiration. And we were like, oh, that's flat lays. Oh, this is so cool. And we saw that people were talking about the books that we liked. Both of us read different stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like I can talk to people all around the world about books. Um, and at the same time, I'd also been like learning and studying a bit about digital marketing, um, but I wasn't really getting a chance to use those skills at work. So I was like, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to see if all the things that I've learned, um, I can apply um, and make some new friends. And it was just like the best decision that I've ever made. It's been so much fun. And it's such a beautiful community of people. And that was something that you said at the very top of your answer to describing your bookstagram feed. And I think it's that community that keeps us there, but it's also that community that made us go there in the first place. So other than people and the people on bookstagram perhaps what are some other things that inspire the photos that you take at the moment i mean tricky question <laughs> um i mean i think i'm just inspired by the things that i've collected over the years i, I mean as i said i've got a lot of vintagey kind of vibes i usually try and include some of my um, vintage book collection um, in the backgrounds on vintage papers and handwritten script and and that kind of thing um, some of which I've like from my own collection ends up uh, in my shop, um, but also, you know, just things that I love. I love the stories behind objects like that, that have already lived a whole life in someone else's hands um, and subtly incorporating that into the backgrounds of my photos gives me great joy. And even encompassing those, encompassing an article or an object that has had that, story behind it or has a story behind it is so fitting to place beside a book. There's some beautiful harmony happening in there. You also occasionally showcase books that you've received from your unpaid partnership with text publishing. Can you tell me about this? Yeah. So I work with publishers a lot. Um, I have lots of different um, partnerships with them. I would say that they are almost all exclusively unpaid. Um, there's been a couple of times in the past when I've been commissioned by Hachette to take some campaign photography for some of their, um, for some of their titles that were coming up. That was a couple of years ago. Um, so I've been actually probably the reason why like unpaid partnership with text publishing has kind of caught your eye is um, I've been experimenting with the way that I declare 
the relationships that I have, which involve me receiving something in return for something that I do. So that's all connected to the um, Australian uh, legislation guidelines, which were released earlier uh, last year um, from AIMCO, if anyone's interested in looking those up. Um, and so the most recent unpaid partnership with text publishing was that they essentially commissioned me to write a blog post about one of my favorite series, uh, fantasy series that's being published at the moment. Um, and in return, they sent me some books. <laughs> so unpaid, but um, still compensated for, for my time and effort in writing the blog post. And the series that they asked me to write about was uh, the Mirror Visitor Quartet by Christelle Debose, who is a, I hope I said her name correctly. Um, she's a French author um, and her young adult fantasy series is being translated uh, into English and being published by text. And they're publishing them like one year at a time. But the series, the quartet is already finished in France. Um, so I am so excited for the final book, which comes out, I think, I wanna say it's like August or September this year. I'm a super fan of the series. I think it's great, really super creative, um, amazing, interesting world building, um, just doing a lot of like things that are very different to what's happening in English language uh, fantasy for young adults. So yeah, love the series. And how do the different publishers that you um, are commissioned by, how do they contact you or get onto you? Is it all through Bookstagram? Yeah, I would say that it's mostly through Bookstagram. Um, some early on, um, probably in the first sort of year or so when I started babbling books, um, I first I kind of got my confidence up to kind of get in touch with publishers. And I wasn't really that familiar with the publishing industry um, in this country. So I actually did quite a bit of research. Um, I was the kind of person who read a book and uh, didn't even pay attention to who the author's name was, let alone who the publisher was. Um, I wasn't really keeping up with new releases or anything like that. I was really seeking out books that were within the niche or series of niches that I liked to read within. So it took a bit of time for me to kind of get familiar with the publishing landscape. And I started out by requesting advanced um, copies, e-book e copies through uh, NetGalley. So the online platform where you can um, like sign up. And most um, of those places like NetGalley, you don't actually need to have specific like follower numbers or things like that. You can sign up if you're not an Instagrammer, maybe if you have a blog or something like that. Um, and then based on, um, you know, you can request titles and publishers can choose to approve or deny you. So that was kind of how I got started was like feeling my way out um, with that and then doing the research to find out who were the actual Australian publishers because I got rejected by American publishers so many times. There were books that I was like, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. Imagine if I could read that um, before everyone else read it. And um, the disappointment of being rejected because you're not within their publishing zone uh, hurt me. So I was like, I'm actually going to do my research. So now I work with most of the publishers um, who are in Australia, um, both the large ones and small ones. Um, and yeah, most of that is already established relationships based on me initially reaching out, um, often just like cold emailing the publicity um, email address, which is usually available on the website of any of the publishers and just being like, this is who I am. This is what my audience is. These are the kinds of books that I love to read and just kind of sharing my 
passion and enthusiasm, I guess. Um, so that's, that's really how those relationships began. And then now particular publicists will usually email me. Um, I would say 99% of the stuff I do with publishers is via email rather than like Instagram. My Instagram DMs are a wasteland. So <laughs> I try really hard to respond to every DM that I receive, but I'm not always successful. Um, so professional relationships, anything like that stuff goes through email. Um, and yeah, the publish publicists of particular books that they have campaigns coming up for will usually email me and often send me a press release and say, I think this um, would be a good title uh, for you. And I'll say yes or no. Um, I don't know if people would be curious about this or like in terms of like how many books I receive or how many books I request and that kind of thing. I always find it fascinating um, to hear that from other bloggers. But I wrote a blog post at the end of last year about um, the kind of stats of my reading year. And in that I um, included the number of books that I had received from publishers. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was like 150 books that I had received from publishers in a year, which is just, that's a lot of books. I mean, I, I feel like I read quite a lot. Um, I think I read like between 90 and hundred books a year, but like that's an extreme amount of books. But what I don't think I mentioned in, um, in that blog post is the number of books that I actively requested. So books that I reached out to the publisher and I said, yes, I definitely want that title. I want to review that was 14. So there were 14 books that I specifically said, I want to be involved in this campaign. I love this author. Usually it was an author whose work I'd previously read and loved or a particular title that grabbed me for some reason might've been, um, a new title like by a woman in translation, which is something that I'm really passionate about, um, or just something that was really on my radar that I was keen uh, to get my hands on. So I think my relationship with the publishers has changed over the years and I'm a bit more um, protective of my time and I guess the trust that my audience has built with me. I decided at the beginning of 2020 that I would no longer post uh, on my feed or my stories, anything that is a whole. Um, so I just felt that was contributing to an overall kind of fairly extreme consumerist narrative. And I didn't really want to participate in that. So those 150 books I got from publishers only ended up being featured on my feed if I reviewed them. So if I actually read them, um, so yeah, just, I guess everyone has their own personal lines in the sand and that's one of mine. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for sharing those statistics with me as well. Like I found that really interesting. And when a publisher sends you a, a stack of books, potentially, is there any obligation to have to read them? Um, the only books that I feel obligated to read and to review are the ones that I've requested. Um, because I, you know, I'm an active participant and it, I mean, I think that's from a, a personal kind of, um, maybe from a values perspective is the best way to describe that. Like for me, for my sense of integrity, if I've asked for something, then I feel I have a, like a responsibility to, um, to deliver something. And they've sent me a book which has an intrinsic value and I'm able to deliver a service, um, which also has an intrinsic value. So I think there's a, a kind of an exchange going on there, 
Whereas the unsolicited books, so the books that I did not request that they've sent just because they have my postal address, um, I don't feel any obligation to review those. I think early on um, when it was exciting and well, I mean, it's always exciting to re review books. I'm not going to or like receive books. I'm not going to say that it's not exciting. It is always exciting. Um, but I feel that now there is a, there's an element of um, like, I'm just part of the marketing machine uh, and the churn of books through some of, especially the large publishers is um, quite extreme. And the turnaround, the windows that they have is almost that if I don't review it within the same week that that title is published, like it's almost not really relevant to them. Um, whereas it's still relevant to me and to my audience who are not consuming and buying books at the same pace that publishers are, are producing them. So a, a book that was published three or four years ago is still interesting and still relevant if I've enjoyed it um, because it's still interesting and relevant to my audience. But as to what that review, you know, is I don't think that review is probably of value to a to a publicist, um, just because of the way that the industry works. Um, it's not a negative. It's just I think the reality of the situation. So I do hang on to books that I think that I'll read that I receive, um, but a lot of them get donated. And another sort of service that you provide is your own business that you have, which the Instagram handles at Mina and Maud. I pronounce that okay. Excellent. Yeah, sure. And can you tell me about your business? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's um, it's something that kind of grew out of my experiences on Bookstagram. Um, I started sharing some of the journaling that I was doing. Um, while I was traveling. So in 2016, I quit my job and spent six months traveling around Europe with my partner. And during that time, I didn't have any bookstagram props because I was living out of a backpack. <laughs> um, I did have some books that I was reading along the way and I had um, an e-reader and was still listening to audiobooks. Um, but I was pretty limited in terms of like what I could take pictures of. Um, I had prepared some photos beforehand, um, but as much as you can really prepare for six months away, um, I did my best. Um, and so I had to really get creative and there was a lot of like dodgy lighting, like youth hostel sheets with cups of tea and or porridge because that was all I could afford to eat. Like there's a lot of photos like that. And one of the main props that I had was this travel journal that I was keeping. I was kind of collaging bits and pieces from places I was staying. Um, and, and so that kind of became the backdrop of a lot of my my pictures to give some visual interest, to tap into that kind of vintage vibes that I was going for, but also as a way for me to kind of share some of the story of this trip that I was going on, which I was um, sharing on my Instagram stories, which were quite a new feature uh, at that time. And so a lot of people ask questions about it the whole time, like there's kind of this building this familiarity with this um, travel journal. And um, when I finished my trip and I got back home, um, I promised that I would film video flipping through all the pages of the journal uh, and I did and when I finally said like okay you can watch it it's on Instagram it's 18 minutes of me oh you do see my face at the beginning but anyway it's 18 minutes of me flipping through the pages of this journal uh, and narrating like where I went on my trip and 
The video now has over a hundred thousand views on YouTube. Um, it was published a few years ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, it w became like this kind of rolling boulder of, uh, interest and curiosity and engagement, um, that wasn't really directly about books, but it was this thing that resonated with a lot of fellow people who loved to read was this, um, very tactile thing that I had been doing for a really long time, but had never really thought overlapped with what I was doing in, in terms of books. And so out of that came a bunch of opportunities. I started teaching, uh, workshops about journaling, which, um, I still do. I actually taught one last night. Um, and, and kind of sharing my experiences with, um, with journaling and at the same time overlaying that with my love for all things vintage, all things old, the history and the stories of, of, of objects and my admittedly probably too large for one small human being collection of old papers. Um, and I decided to sort of turn that creative inspiration um, into a business and drawing on the um, creative support that I received through my life from two um, like great women, my great grandmother and my grandmother who um, I've named the business after, um, who really nurtured my creativity throughout my childhood and um, throughout my adulthood as well and always supported the creative things I wanted to do and encouraged me to read. Both of them were, one was, uh, you know, a poet in her own way and the other a teacher, a big reader and encourager. So it all came together in that way. And I think while the business itself is separate to babbling books, it's still so much overlap and it's so much a part of who I am and really grew out of the experiences I had with babbling books. Um, and I'm really thankful for the opportunities that all of the people who've engaged with me over the years and encouraged me to share the creative things that I was doing behind the scenes, um, because I might not have done that otherwise. I think I always felt that it was just something that I was pottering along, um, doing on my own. And I didn't necessarily see that other people might find value in that. So, yeah. That's a really lovely backstory connecting your business to, to bookstagram and also things that we wistfully think about at the moment, like travel. And I think journaling is potentially something that's, but something that's also gained a bit of speed over COVID as well. And it's a great way for people to record their thoughts, whether or not they're leaving the house. So our book that we're going to discuss today also encompasses old bits of paper or a kind of antique looking pieces of paper that I'm just imagining the smell of old books as soon as we start talking about the Dictionary of Lost Words. A few fun facts about the book. From my perspective, I have seen this book an awful lot on Bookstagram over the last few weeks and sometimes it's been really positive posts of people who've read it but I'm also really disappointed to see that it's been appearing on a lot of people's bottom of TBR challenge. So I keep sliding into the comments and saying, bump this one up. This is definitely something that you want to make sure that you read. And I decided I wanted to do an episode on it. And when I had seen that you had read it as well, Tams, and I was like, yes, this is a great opportunity for me to talk to her. <laughs> and the other, the other really fascinating thing I find about this book is it's actually got a really high rating on Goodreads or what I would consider a high rating on Goodreads at 4.27, which I think is 
is pretty high, especially for um, a, an Australian author and especially in relation to historical fiction. And the last thing to make sure I mention about this book and a bit of backstory is that it is based on true events. There was actually a scrippy in Dr. Murray's backyard and there were words such as Bond made left out of the first publication. A summary about the Dictionary of Lost Words before we start our chat. Uh, one of my most unique reads of 2020, The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams follows Esme, a strong, independent, curious, and at times unconventional woman who grows up under the sorting table, watching as words are defined, quoted and decided on for the first publication of the Oxford English Dictionary. Excited and disappointed by certain words that have been left out of the publication, Esme begins to collect her own words and stores them away in a suitcase beneath the bed. The novel becomes so much more than just a creation of a dictionary though. It gives us a closer look at the political and social happenings of the early 20th century, from the woman suffragette movement to the First World War and the love between a father and a daughter. So Tamsin, when we connected about this book, I had noticed that on your Instagram post, you said that this was a book that you initially had overlooked. What was it about this book that you overlooked and potentially other bookstagrammers are doing the same thing when they're putting them at the bottom of their TBR? So I haven't seen this um, bottom of TBR challenge. I feel like I've missed that on, on bookstagram. I'm going to have to go check that out because I'm very fascinated by that by someone with it, who, as someone who has a giant TBR. Um, in terms of why I personally initially overlooked it or almost completely overlooked it, um, it was one of those unsolicited titles that I talked about earlier, um, was sent to me by a publisher, I think it's a firm press in Australia. Um, it wasn't something that um, is necessarily a book that I would normally read. I don't read a lot of historical fiction, probably only a handful of um, historical fiction books a year. But also I'd had just a really long string of bad luck with historical fiction at the beginning of last year. Um, some like particularly memorably bad books. Well, maybe they're not bad books. That's probably a harsh way of putting it. Books that I was extremely disappointed by that I felt like I'd taken a real risk on by branching out and diving into more historical fiction than I would normally read. And um, yeah, some of them... <laughs> the only one star book that I uh one star that I gave to a book last year was The Familiars by Stacey Hall I could not stand that book <laughs> and the more I thought about it afterwards the more angry it made me um that that was the way that the story was um chosen to be framed the way that um characters lives unfolded and who the author had made decisions to choose to focus on um particularly as um, after I finished reading the book, I realized that it was based, uh, as the Dictionary of Lost Words is, on true events and things that actually happen and the lives of women who actually lived. And um, yeah, I was, I was pretty disappointed. And so those were the reasons why when I saw, okay, based on true story, you know, based on the actual historical details, historical fiction also set around that like World War um, period, which is honestly my least favorite historical period to read about just have read so much historical fiction from that period that it just doesn't it takes a lot it takes a really impressive narrative that does something really different 
to grab my attention enough to make me want to read it. Um, so that was kind of the, the, the puddle of reasons why I would probably not pick up that book. In its favour was that I really liked the cover. It was, I thought it was a really intriguing design. The poppies did make me think Remembrance Day and I was like, oh, maybe it's another war book, um, which I'm personally not really into, but some people are. Um, but this, it had those vintagey vibes. And if there's one thing that we're coming up with today, it's that that's kind of my thing. And I just happened to um, see that it was available as an audiobook um, through my library. And I was like, ah, okay, I'll give it a go. It's, you know, I've received a, a review copy. I'm going to listen to the free version from my library. It's a pretty low stakes investment. If I get a, you know, half an hour, an hour of my time in and I'm not really engaging with it, then, oh, well, I, you know, I gave it a shot. And um, I really enjoyed it. I got really hooked into Esme's world and I liked the way the narrative was structured and the way that it um, unfolded. I thought that it did quite a few things that were different to a lot of other historical novels by not giving like a central dramatic point. And it covers a lot, like a really long time span of history. It covers like a, over a hundred years of, of history. And I think that makes it, unique in covering the whole span of someone's life, but covering it in, um, yeah, in a, in a unique way that kind of gives the historical moments that are unfolding that might reasonably be expected to have an impact on a woman's life in those times um, as the kind of markers of different parts of that person's life, but without making those events consume their entire existence that actually for many of the people who were living in those times, they were things that created uncertainty or um, grief or risk or gave them an opportunity to do something that they might not have had the chance to do otherwise, to interact with people that they might not have had a chance to meet otherwise. Um, and they were used as like leveraging points to tell this interesting um, unfolding feminist story, um, which I thought was really clever. And I, I really enjoyed the way that that was put together. I like that you also mentioned the cover art before because it is another thing that that grabbed me and poppies are my favorite flower. I just love the way they sit. I love the I love the idea of remembrance behind them and recently when I was in Tasmania there's fields of poppies that they uh, harvest for medical use but they're just so stunning sitting in the field and all you want to do is jump a fence and take a photo. <laughs> whack a book down, take a quick shot, but it has like skull and crossbones signs on it. So you, de you definitely don't want to cross the fence. <laughs> but I, I love looking at the symbolism behind different covers. So I have a theory that I want to post to you and see whether or not you agree or disagree in terms of the cover art and if you think I might be onto something. So the suitcase is fairly self-explanatory that we see down the bottom of the cover and that features very heavily within the story because that is where Esme hides each of the little slips she either sort of steals or that she starts to write herself. And I thought the flowers coming out of it is it's almost as if it's another collection of words are flourishing within the suitcase. So like giving birth and growth and re-life to all of, and life to all of these words that, 
were um, not considered in the initial publication. So with that also in mind, there's a lot of uh, language throughout the novel that refers to remembrance and the idea of words being a way to resurrect people. And I also thought that's what the poppies could potentially re represent is that remembrance of people and places and times and events and even how words have changed over time as well. So that, that was my theory. I love your theory. I think that makes a lot of sense because the thing that came to my mind once I'd started reading the book and sort of realized that no, this wasn't a, like a world war kind of themed book was perhaps that this is harking back to the language of flowers, which was particularly popular. I mean, may have sort of fallen out of fashion by the time um, we begin Esme's story, but um, you know, in that sort of um, Edwardian uh, coming into the Victorian era, there was definitely the language of flowers of sending particular flowers or including particular flowers who have particular meanings. And I'd love to know whether or not the designers considered that when they were putting together the cover, but I definitely agree with you that the poppies and the remembrance that they signify really connects with that idea of not being forgotten and that sometimes things being written down um, is not necessarily the only way for them to be remembered, but it's sometimes the only way for them not to be forgotten. And the theme or the kind of core message of the book is that so often women are left out of the narratives that we choose to remember, that we choose not to have forgotten. And there's so little uh, historical detail in many periods of world history where we just don't know. Um, we know there were women there. We know that they were doing things. They were probably living, you know, fabulous and complex, complex lives, but we don't have a lot of historical details about what those lives look like. Or we do have those details, but they're not written down or written about in ways which are easy for us in a modern context to consume. Um, and I think that that kind of message of women's stories being actually everyone's stories um, is really interesting uh, theme to touch on. And I think probably is what is resonating with a lot of those people who have written those really positive reviews on Goodreads is that this is also a forgotten story and it's really nice to see it come to light, especially when, you know, the majority of readers of fiction are women. So, you know, <laughs> this is, this is a book for us. And who's a character within the story that you haven't forgotten? Someone who's been quite memorable. Um, Esme's godmother, Edith, like for sure. She was such a standout character for me. Um, she's, I mean, I wouldn't say that she's necessarily like a central character, like a main character. She's someone who's there. Um, you know, Esme's mother passed away when she's very young. And so, um, Edith is kind of the, um, the, the mother figure for a lot of Esme's life, writing her these beautiful letters um, and guiding her through some kind of key moments in um, her development as a woman and um, in her life. Um, she's the cause of some pain and angst for Esme at different times of her life as I think all um, good and you know, real relationships that have any kind of depth do over time. And so I think for me, she was really memorable. And then I was, um, you know, reading that she was one of the many characters in the book who was a real person um, and the, the contributions that she made to um, 
to the actual dictionary, the, the Oxford Dictionary, um, that were mentioned in the book were her actual contributions and um, that she was a really active participant in shaping the words that made it into the dictionary. So that for me might, gave her an extra layer of, of memorable. And there's just so many memorable and unforgettable female characters throughout the story. So we have Esme, our protagonist, but we also have amazing characters like Lizzie, like Edith, and of course, Mabel, who just is a great little comic relief within the story and a beautiful source of contrast to Esme. So we're seeing we're seeing a whole different range of, of social status within the story as well. And, and Mabel definitely provides that, that poorer class of, of people. And Mabel gives us some really memorable quotes within the story as well. Are there any quotes that resonated with you from the book? I think because I listened to the um, audio version of the book that I not, I don't have any particular quotes. So I'm, I'm not, very good at remembering quotes from books. I'll be honest that like, unless I really, something really grabs me and I use my little book tabs and um, mark things as I'm going along, I'm not the kind of person that ever memorizes quotes. But um, there were definitely some kind of moments within the story that really resonated with me. Um, a lot of the funny moments just like, you know, they always make you smile, like they crack you up. A lot of the the interactions with Mabel definitely fall into that category. And I think you're right. I think she opens up a whole new world to um, Esme. And I think um, also, I think opens up a whole world, world for readers in a lot of ways that in a lot of historical fiction, class isn't really something that gets considered or um, you know, maybe is something that's not dealt with particularly well. You'll have your transformational kind of Cinderella story type things incorporated, but um, actually a more realistic kind of integration of the realities of class division um, isn't always something that gets covered, I think, in quite such a thoughtful way, where it's not just shown as like the wealthy and the poor. There's a lot of different shades of grey within that. And I think the Dictionary of Lost Words does that very well. Even within the people who work in the scrippy, um, the, the dynamics between um, uh, Esme and Mabel, but Esme and um, her friend Tilda and the people who work in the printing rooms and all sorts of things. There's lots of dynamics there, which I find really fascinating. Um, but one of the real like key moments that really resonated with me in the book that doesn't have a particular quote attached to it um, is all of the long walks in the countryside that Esme goes on um, at one period when she's staying in the countryside. And um, I won't reveal anything about the, what brings her to that location, but um, I think that process of like walking to find peace, to find solace, to find connection and kind of ground yourself when you've felt like you're um, really becoming detached from the things that are around you and the things you're experiencing is, um, yeah, something that really resonates with me. It's something that I often incorporate into like my teaching um, when I'm talking about journaling, but also is a, you know, a real process for me when I'm listening to books, like I often listen to audiobooks and walk um, and the Dictionary of Lost Words is one of those books that I listen to on lots and lots of walks, um, you know, as I'm observing and looking at things. So I, I think that um, that motion, the, the physicality of it and its way of connecting you to yourself and to your thoughts and sorting through 
complicated things really resonated with me. I think some of the key moments definitely are, are quotes for me because I, I did read the physical book. And I also found that starting a book journal last year made me sort out these different words that I was liking or phrases of words that I was liking. And as I'm getting older, I'm realizing what I love about books is the language that it gives me. And potentially I didn't appreciate that five or even 10 years ago what I love about language and people quite oftenly joke with me about it. Like, Oh yeah, that's the English teacher. And yeah, okay. It kind of is, but it's also something that, that really interests me is words and how we form words together to tell stories. And I think through reading this book, I really came to the revelation that, Oh, that's, it's actually why I love reading is because I, I love the words on the page. And this is a quote I'm just going to share that I think sums up my love for this book. It is, words are like stories, don't you think, Mr. Sweetman? They change as they are passed mouth to mouth. Their memories stretch or truncate to which, to which what needs to be said. The dictionary can't possibly capture every variation, especially since so many have been, be since so many have never been written down. The whole book was just filled with moments like this where someone who like myself is obsessed with words or anyone who really likes to read books and resonates with the ideas of stories just shone through. Was there anything that you learnt through reading this novel? I mean, I definitely learnt the definitions of lots of words that I wasn't familiar with. Some of them I probably could have guessed, like bond made. Um, I think it's kind of there in, in the word, but I think the, the context in which it was used and um, kind of defining Lizzie's existence um, as well was something that I wouldn't necessarily have connected the two um, on my own. I think that was really what I learned. A lot of like cool words that I wouldn't have come across. And I particularly loved the um, more vulgar expressions, some of which were uh, taught to Esme by Mabel, but by the other colourful characters that she meets on her journeys. I think that was really interesting because um, often the way we swear gives us great insight to the things that we value and the things that we fear. Uh, and the way that that's evolved over time is endlessly fascinating to me. I there's just so there was just so much I took away from this book and it's funny you bring up the vulgar words because I can vividly remember when I was in year four and we got our first Macquarie dictionary that I went through with not like my teacher or my parents or anything I went through with a black nico and crossed out all the naughty words like I still have a copy of this dictionary somewhere. So when, when I release this podcast, I should share some of the photos of the words I've crossed out. But, and listening to this story or reading, reading this story, I realized how stupid <laughs> that was to do uh, as a, oh, how old are you and you're in year four? As a 10 year old or a nine year old, go through and cross out the naughty words. And I love that Esme's character wasn't necessarily fearful of the words. She actually went and um, went out to find these words and to collate it. But I also, for the first time, really considered that the Oxford Dictionary or the first publication of it was primar primarily created by men. I mean, it, it makes sense to me, but I never really considered the fact that, that a whole great swagger of words would have been missed from the dictionary 
because women were mostly left out of the dictionary. And the author herself speaks about the idea that most of the words are referenced from male authors and male writers, not female writers. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, the thing that like, as soon as you said that jumps to my mind is um, the the podcast from um, uh, Astrid Edwards and Jamila Rizvi, Anonymous Was a Woman, um, which is another um, book related interview sort of style podcast, um, playing on that idea that um, often throughout history, an author credited as anonymous was actually a woman. And I, that's, to me is, is, I don't think for me that that necessarily came as a revelation. I've, um, you know, been fascinated by and studied history for quite a long time. And I think I kind of took that um, perhaps as a given, um, particularly having been to Oxford, like they talk about going to the Bodleian Library and a lot of places like streets that I've walked around. And um, while women are now allowed to be members, which was, you know, quite a controversial thing in uh, Esme's time. Um, it's definitely not what you would call a space that feels equal and inviting. And I still, even now when I, well, not now, even when I went there in 2016, 2017, something like that, like it feels like a masculine space. It feels like a space where I am not necessarily, um, you know, the, the person who's meant to be in this space. And I can only imagine how much that feeling would be, um, you know, kind of amplified if you were, um, you know, also a person of colour or if you're also a queer person, someone who um, is excluded from those spaces um, on lots of other levels and by lots and lots of other layers of, um you know, history and, um, you know, lots of other systems. So I, I think there's a lot of, yeah, kind of context that's going on uh, in the book that it doesn't necessarily capture all of that complexity, but it does touch on some of it. After reading this book, have you got a newfound appreciation for the dictionary? <laughs> I think I have a different appreciation for the dictionary. I think I have a newfound appreciation for the process of like, collating, printing and publishing uh, something like a dictionary, um, just the sheer amount of effort it goes into just deciding what the definition of and the references are for a single word. But um, I did when I was writing my little mini review, um, make reference to the fact that I found it amusing that you know, the dictionary was such a slow moving thing where each year that you would celebrate the publication of another letter where now we have, you know, online, uh, you know, Twitter commentary, snappy, like social hot, like, what do you call those? Hot button? Hot topics, something like that. You know, we have dictionaries weighing in on, you know, pop culture moments and social issues. And we have a very different relationship with dictionaries that I think is evolving over time as the way that we interact with physical objects changes over time. But I don't see a future where we don't have a need for some sort of a collected place that helps us to define the words. But I think it's going to become something that evolves ever more rapidly as the way that we use words evolves more and more rapidly. 
I think that is a perfect place to end the podcast, looking forward into the future and how words might interact. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Bookstore and Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and follow me on Instagram at the Bookstore and Podcast.